The country. I wondered about you when you told me never to leave a box of wooden strike anywhere matches lying around the house because the mice might get into them and start a fire. But your face was absolutely straight when you twisted the lid down on the round tin where the matches, you said, are always stowed. Who could sleep that night? Who could whisk away the thought of the one unlikely mouse padding along a cold water pipe behind the floral wallpaper, gripping a single wooden match between the needles of his teeth? Who could not see him rounding a corner, the blue tip scratching against a rough-hewn beam, the sudden flare, the creature for one bright, shining moment suddenly thrust ahead of his time? Now a fire starter, now a torchbearer in a forgotten ritual, little brown druid illuminating some ancient night. Who could fail to notice, lit up in the blazing insulation, the tiny looks of wonderment on the faces of his fellow mice, one-time inhabitants of what was once your house in the country? Afraid of the Dark In sightless night, terrors draw near, nameless fears of talon and tooth. Hopelessness yawns before us, an abyss, alone and unknown in the gloom, longing for the dawn. O sacred flame blaze forth, wisdom brought to life. Guide us with the light of hope, the warmth of love, the beacon of purpose and meaning. Because we are all afraid of the dark, let there be light. As I told the children, today I will be telling you about the history of the flaming chalice and why we light one every Sunday to start our worship. And so to do that, first we need to climb into a time machine and set the dial for the early years of the 15th century. Our destination is Prague, Central Europe, and what was then Bohemia. We step out of this time machine and onto the campus of Prague University, and we wander into a lecture hall. The lecturer that day is Jan Hus, a Catholic priest and the dean of the philosophy faculty. He was speaking that day about his ideas for reforming the church. This was before the Reformation, so the Roman Catholic Church was the church in Western Europe. Father Hus thought it should be doing things differently, Somehow, Hus had come across a banned book written by an English dissenter who challenged the practices of the Catholic Church. This was before the printing press, so books, especially heretical books, were scarce. Hus read this book and adopted many of the ideas it contained. Hus was inspired and called the church to reform. 
He believed that the mass should be in the local language, in Czech, not the Latin that few people understood, as the mass was said then. He also believed that the congregation should eat the bread and drink from the chalice of wine at communion. At that time, the congregation only ate the bread, and only the priest got to drink the wine. Hose argued that the church was everyone who attended and practiced, and in his day, many thought that the church was just the clergy, and the people were peripheral to what the church actually was. Hose opposed the religious crusades of his day and the selling of indulgences to pay for them. Indulgences in Catholic practice are a way to reduce the punishment for sins. Indulgences can include saying prayers and and acts of service. And in the era of Hus, indulgences fueled corruption. The rich were able to buy their way out of purgatory. And selling indulgences enriched the church and their favored monarchs. The practice of selling indulgences was one of the things that really angered the early church reformers, including Jan Hus and Martin Luther. So perhaps Hus was attacking one of these practices in the lecture that we heard. When we leave that lecture hall and speak to others, we learn that Hus is wildly popular among the Czech people. His proposed reforms unite them across class divisions and add to a growing nationalist identity. The chalice becomes the symbol of those who supported Hus. It was not a chalice with a flame in it, just the chalice cup. They called themselves the chalice people. And those of you who know a little bit about religious history can probably guess the story of Jan Hus does not end well. In 1413, a church council ordered that all of his writings be burned. The following year, he was imprisoned, and several months later, he was tried for heresy. He told his accusers that he would recant his beliefs if they could show him proof in the Bible that what he believed was wrong. And they didn't engage that challenge. He was convicted of heresy and died for his his beliefs. He was burned at the stake in 1415. Eventually, in some cases centuries after his death, Hus won the argument. About 50 years after he died, the church reinstated the practice of inviting lay people to drink from the chalice filled with wine at communion. A century after that, the Roman church abolished the selling of indulgences. And the Roman Catholic Church started saying mass in the local language in in the 1960s. So now we need to step back in our time machine and jump into the, back into the future, and as we, or back to the present. And as we speed across time, we see Hus's legacy unfold and fast forward before us. We see that Hus's martyrdom led his followers to form their own church, known as the Hussites, or the Chalice people. They were among the first Protestants before Protestants was an idea. It was, before that was a word used for religious reformers. They opposed violence, political repression, the death penalty, and refused to be conscripted into the military. They opposed transubstantiation, the belief that the bread and wine literally turn into the body and blood of Christ at communion. And when they served communion, the congregation ate the bread and drank wine from the chalice. 
As the centuries speed along, we see the Hussites factionalize and splinter. Huss's religious, religious heirs call themselves the Otraquists, the Union of Bohemian Brethren, the Taborites, the Oberites, and so many other names. There are intergroup fights, religious wars, and antagonisms and agreement with the Roman Church. Many of these groups fade away because of poor alliances and religious repression. And as we travel across the centuries, we see that the only Hussite group that survives to the present is the Moravian Brethren Church, a small Protestant church with about 750,000 followers globally. Their church motto might speak to all of us today. It is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love. Notice that we as Unitarian Universalists are not the, in the religious line of the Hussites. We are not his followers or descendants of his followers. And Hus is not our spiritual ancestor. So how did we end up with his symbol? For that, we need to jump back into our time machine. So now we are headed to Portugal in 1941. We are all crowded into the Lisbon office of the Reverend Charles Joy, a Unitarian minister who is serving as the European Commissioner of the Unitarian Service Committee. He was tasked with assisting refugees and other victims of the Second World War, including Czech Unitarians, Jews, artists, dissidents, and many others. Dan Hotchkiss describes the context and the challenge of this work. The USC was an unknown organization in 1941, and this was a special handicap in the cloak and dagger world where establishing trust quickly across barriers of language, nationality, and faith could mean life instead of death. Disguises, signs, and countersigns, and midnight runs across guarded borders were the means of freedom in those days. The USC issued travel documents to those fleeing the war who had lost their documents along the way. And this was important because Lisbon was one of the few open ports in Europe at that time. So if you could get someone on a boat with travel papers that certified that the refugees were safe for resettlement, they might have half a chance of being accepted somewhere else. The documents that the USC created needed to look trustworthy. They needed to look official, and they needed a logo. Joy needed a logo for these documents, so he asked the artist Hans Deutsch to design one. Deutsch was born in Austria and had been living in Paris during Hitler's rise to power. He was a political cartoonist who had been hostile to Hitler, and so when France was invaded, he fled to neutral Portugal. And there he began working with the Unitarian Service Committee. So a while later, still crowded in this tiny office, we watch Hans Deutsch return with his proposed logo. He borrowed that old Czech chalice, a symbol of resistance and freedom, and adapted it for this new era and new challenge. He added a flame to the chalice. The symbol that Deutsch designed was a flaming chalice logo, not dissimilar from the one that's on the front of our orders of service that so many of us wear in jewelry. Reflecting later, Joyce said that he asked Deutsch to create a symbol for their papers to make them look official, to give dignity and importance to them, 
and at the same time to symbolize the spirit of our work. When a document may keep a man out of jail, give him standing with governments and police, it is important that it looks important. Communication was poor in those days. It would have taken too long for Joy to get official approval of the new logo from the American headquarters of the Unitarian Service Committee. So he decided to seek forgiveness rather than permission. <laughs> Joy approved a Deutsche's logo and started using the symbol on official documents. He wrote back to headquarters, I've had it made up into a seal, not because I have any idea of forcing this upon the committee without consulting them, but because these things cost very little here, and at least it will serve as temporarily expedient. He then went on to explain the symbolism as he understood it. Personally, I like it very much. It is simple, chaste, and distinctive. It represents, as you see, a chalice with a flame, the kind of chalice which the Greeks and Romans put on their altars. The holy oil burning in it is a symbol of helpfulness and sacrifice. Joy hoped that the Unitarian Service Committee might make the chalice the symbol of their work. That hope proved too modest. The flaming chalice logo became a symbol of the Unitarian Service Committee, and then after a while, the Unitarian Universalist Association. There are a few ironies in this story. First, Deutsch, the man who gave us this flaming chalice logo, was not a Unitarian. There is no record that he ever attended a Unitarian service, and yet he gave us his, our symbol. He admired our religious commitment to save refugees and other victims of the Second World War. He wrote, I am not what you may actually call a believer, but if your kind of life is the profession of your faith, as it is, I feel sure, then religion, ceasing to be magic and mysticism, becomes confession to practical philosophy, and what is more, to active, really useful social work. And this religion, with or without a heading, is one to which even a godless fellow like myself can say wholeheartedly, yes. So now we're going to climb back in our time machine again and return to the present. And as we make this journey, we see the flaming chalice turn from a logo into a ritual. The Unitarian Service Committee, and then later the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee, had the chalice logo for decades before kindling a chalice flame became a common practice in worship. Children's classes, youth groups, and women's small groups were lighting a chalice flame by the early 1960s. The first time that a chalice was lit in worship, as best as anyone can determine, was in 1965, over two decades after the Unitarians had adopted this logo for some of their work. And that was lit by the youth at the Christmas Eve service at West Shore Unitarian Church outside of Cleveland. From there, the practice spread, usually starting in children's religious education or women's groups before migrating into the sanctuary and becoming a ritual for the whole congregation. It's appropriate that here on Sundays, it is our children and youth who lead this ritual for us. From our time machine, as everything passes by in a blur, we see that by the 1970s, the chalice was becoming widely used as a symbol of our faith. 
The first time the chalice was lit at General Assembly was in 1984. General Assembly is the national gathering of Unitarian Universalists held, held annually. This June it will be in Columbus, Ohio, and I hope you consider attending. There's something powerful at being in a room with thousands of Unitarian Universalists. I also hope you consider supporting our youth who are furiously fundraising to be able to attend. I attended General Assembly when I was 16 and it was transformative to me and set my life on a new trajectory. One of the youth group's fundraisers is the second Sunday lunch in exchange for doing our dishes for us and helping the committee who's sponsoring it do our dishes, they get to, they get to keep any profits once people submit their receipts. So if you're in the lunch line in a little while, I encourage you to drop a few extra dollars or more than just a few extra dollars into that basket to help them on their way. And now our time machine makes its way back to 2016. Welcome back. It was quite a journey. And what have we learned? While we learned that the history of the chalice as a religious symbol is long, lighting a chalice at the beginning of worship and other gatherings is relatively new among us. Why did it catch on so quickly and uni among Unitarian Universalists, a group that can't really seem to agree on much of anything? I think it's a testament to the power of ritual and the power of symbol. Lighting a chalice at the beginning of worship, the beginning of classes, the beginning of meetings is something uniquely Unitarian Universalist. No one else does this, and nearly every Unitarian Universalist community does this. I visited about a dozen congregations in recent years, and every congregation does this that I have attended. I know there are a few outliers out there, but very few. It is the one weekly ritual we do that is only ours. Everybody else sings hymns and has sermons and does readings, but we light a chalice. We are the chalice people. Lighting a chalice is something that binds us together across geographic distances and divisions and across all of the diversity and divisions within our congregations. The flaming chalice binds us together, becomes a symbol on the front of our orders of service, hanging on our wall, projected on our front of our sanctuary, is an insignia on our jewelry, because it is a rich symbol. The cup and fire are rich symbols. The chalice cup brims with meanings. What does it mean to you? The chalice can be the Christian communion cup of Jan Hus, a cup that everyone can drink from and share. It can be the cup placed on Greek and Roman altars, as Charles Joy writes. It can be the cup of community, the cup of connection, the cup of compassion. The chalice cup can mean so many things. The flame of the chalice is also full of meaning. What does it mean to you? It could represent helpfulness and sacrifice. That's what Charles Joy believed. It can symbolize the light of truth, the warmth of community, the fire of commitment. Those were the words said at the last congregation I served every Sunday as they lit the chalice. The flame could represent the religious martyrs, Jan Hus and so many others whose commitment to the truth as they understood it led to their death, 
often by being burned alive for heresy. It could be the beacon of hope that guided refugees and now guides us towards justice and radical hospitality. It can mean intellectual and religious freedom, the torch we carry to light our way as we seek the truth. The chalice flame can mean so many things. And one of the beautiful things about a symbol worth having is that it doesn't have to mean one thing. It can mean all of those things at once. The chalice cup and flame can hold everything that we wish it to mean. And there's no official denominational statement on it means this one thing. So as we lit the chalice this morning, what did it mean to you? And what might it mean going forward? Whatever meaning it holds, I would imagine that it's different for each of us. And that is the sign of a good symbol and a good ritual. It holds complexity. It doesn't mean one thing, and it won't mean one thing. We don't have to agree on what it means before we light the chalice. We do it and revel in the reality that it can hold as many meanings as we want to give it. And so as we close, let us take a moment to look at our chalice flame. What does it mean for you? What might it grow into meaning if we jump ahead in our time machine and see Unitarian Universalists lighting a chalice decades from now? May our flame be a beacon of truth and a beacon of freedom. May we always know the warmth of community. And may we carry forward our legacy of resistance and compassion. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.